shot but just one more time before I died. Although I knew the likelihood of this happening was extremely remote. A prisoner of war with a broken leg and multiple wounds had virtually no chance of surviving the primitive conditions of a North Korean field hospital. When we did survive the various field hospitals, the POW camp that followed promised to finish us off. Now, almost miraculously, we'd made it. Here I was, the personal possessor of a bar of milk chocolate and safely ensconced in a military hospital bed, a fair dinkum bed with springs that squeaked, all 65 pounds of skin and bone concealed beneath crispy white sheets. With trembling hands, I tore away the top quarter of the outer wrapper, peeled the silver foil from a corner of the chocolate bar, then carefully broke off an individual square. Then, postponing the grand moment when it would contact my tongue so as to better anticipate the experience, I examined the brand name pressed into the tiny portion. Its calligraphy, so precise and assured, belonged to a world where sanity and order always prevailed. At last the warmth from my finger and thumb began to transfer into the tiny square, and it started to soften, so I placed the chocolate in my mouth, closing my eyes to savour its exquisite creaminess. The initial flavour was everything I'd dreamed about. Then, after a few seconds, the richness hit my stomach. It was as if I'd been punched in the solar plexus, causing me to double over in the bed so that my head slammed against my knees. This was followed by an irrepressible surge which rose from my lower regions and threw me backwards. I started to retch, when, just as suddenly, my torso was hurled forward, sending a spray of watery vomit onto the snowy sheets. The unfamiliar chocolate had been too much for a stomach accustomed to a diet of boiled millet and thin rice gruel. I had come full circle, back to an experience that began on the night I was taken prisoner by the North Koreans. On the night of my capture, I had been dragged unconscious from the snow into a partially demolished hut. I awoke in great pain and pleaded with my captors to fashion some sort of splint to support my shattered leg. While they nodded their heads, acknowledging that they could see my leg was broken, they seemed unconcerned. They spoke no English and seemed more interested in going through my pack than attending to my condition. Soon enough, one of them came across a small bar of army-issued chocolate and after removing the wrapper seemed not to know what to do next. Thinking it might be a good way to ingratiate myself, I attempted a smile and indicated by bringing my fingers to my mouth and making a chewing then swallowing motion that he should eat it. The soldier broke off a square and placed it into his mouth. Instead of allowing the chocolate to melt on his tongue, he did as I had indicated and chewed, then immediately swallowed. I waited for the look of delight to cross his face. To the enormous amusement of the others, his face screwed into a grimace of disgust and he began to spit furiously. Bent double and clutching his stomach, he started to heave, then vomited over his canvas boots. His comrades, delighted at the practical joke I'd played on him, were convulsed with laughter, congratulating me with their looks and smiles. When the soldier finally recovered, I could see he was furious. I had caused him to lose face in front of his mates. He advanced on me, and without warning, snatched up his rifle and smashed the butt into the side of my jaw, breaking several teeth. I had just discovered the hard way that chocolate wasn't an Asian thing.
From the evacuation hospital in Seoul, after the briefest of goodbyes, Jimmy was evacuated to the Tokyo Army Hospital, while I was to go to the British Commonwealth Hospital in Kure, the port we'd departed from when we'd first embarked for Korea. At Iwakuni Airport, the Red Cross had put on a posh meal for the Commonwealth prisoners before we were to board an ambulance train to the military hospital. As demonstrated by the chocolate episode, my stomach wasn't yet ready for such a generous gesture. All I could eat was a couple of forkfuls of veggies, using my paper napkin to wipe the glaze of butter off the baby carrots. Although, as a special treat, I took a chance with two dessert spoons of mixed fruit jelly. Yet despite not having the stomach for the meal, to this day I remember the entire menu. This first Western meal I'd encountered in two years gave me additional assurance that I was back in safe hands. In my imagination, I ate every scrap, slowly, savouring every morsel. Cream of tomato soup, roast chicken and bread sauce, new potatoes and parsley sauce, fresh vegetables, mixed fruit jelly and whipped cream, cheese, bread and butter. I also recall thinking that roast chicken was something you only got at Christmas. And just for a moment, my mind, which had long since given up counting days and months and only recognised seasons, became confused. And I thought, this must be Christmas Day. The only day of the year almost every Australian tasted roast chicken. After three and a half months in hospital, the authorities took the opportunity to bum a ride for a dozen or so of the Australian walking wounded myself included, on a chartered Qantas flight, taking some of the military top brass back to Melbourne. It was decided that I would do a further three-months convalescence in Australia before being discharged from the army. With my left leg in plaster up to the hip, I was still very much dependent on my crutches, and it had taken a fair bit of persuasion on my part to convince the army doctors to let me go home. Crutches notwithstanding... I was going back to the island. The war was over for me. Before leaving Japan, I'd been given two years back pay and a couple of medals to wear on Anzac Day. It was more money than I'd ever possessed in my life, and I got scared just thinking about it. The arrangement was that I was to remain in Melbourne to await Jimmy's plane from Tokyo, due in two days' time. How he'd persuaded the US military to let him do his convalescence in Australia, I'll never know, except that Jimmy could persuade most people to do most things. My chartered Qantas flight had been the first plane into Melbourne that morning, and after I'd taken the airport bus into town, where the driver dropped me off at a boarding house in St Kilda Road, one that he personally recommended and that turned out to be owned by his auntie, I took the tram into the city and bought myself some civilian clobber, the usual stuff. Sports jacket, couple of pairs of dacks, one brown and one grey, three pairs of socks, though I only had need for one sock in the meantime, two white shirts and a decent pair of shoes, though again only one shoe being useful in my present predicament. Then I bought a cheap suitcase to carry my army uniform and slouch hat. I was still 60 pounds under my normal weight, and I'd been careful to buy everything miles too big, with the result that I looked an awful fright. I'd put on a few pounds in the hospital, but was still in a pretty emaciated condition, and reckon I could easily have been mistaken for a Darrow who'd been shaved head and beard to get rid of the lice. 
given a good scrub down and then issued with a new set of one-size-fits-all charity handouts from St Vincent de Paul. I don't suppose it mattered much. I knew nobody in Melbourne. After all the fussing about in the hospital and the military debrief where they took us through the propaganda to which we'd been subjected by the Chinese, I was happy enough to be left on my own. I spent the remainder of the morning taking several short tram trips for a bit of a squeeze at the big city. Around one o'clock, I got off the tram at Flinders Street Station and bought a meat pie, which the bloke behind the pie cart smothered in tomato sauce without being asked to. I guess an Australian who didn't want tomato sauce on his meat pie was unimaginable. Earlier in the day, crossing the bridge in the tram going down St Kilda Road, I'd seen several ducks gliding on the Yarra, so I bought half a loaf of bread, and with the pie and the bread stuffed inside my shirt, I headed towards the botanic gardens across the bridge. I only just made it. The pie in a brown paper bag was as hot as buggery and left a blister on my skin. A small price to pay for your first meat pie in three years. I found a bench beside the river, ate my pie, fed the ducks with the bread, watched the lazy brown yarra go by, basked in the sunshine, and soaked up the calm and peaceful world around me. Calm was something I hadn't enjoyed a lot of for what seemed to me to be a very long time. Melbourne in the summer of 1953 was just trying to get its head around hosting the Olympic Games in three years' time, and the city fathers were busy painting and repairing buildings, knocking down the odd one, and planting a few extra street trees to give the metropolis a veneer of sophistication when the world came to visit. A row of a dozen or more cranes stretched along a street near Flinders Street Station. Though I wasn't much of a judge of big cities... Four days before I was due to leave Japan, I'd been given a 48-hour leave pass and took the train...